SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to the Conference USA podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you again. Uh, I took a little break there, Eric, to uh, get married and enjoy the whole process that went along with it. So before we get going, uh, special thanks to Shane Marinelli of 247 Sports who filled in for me uh, over that break and and did a great job. I really enjoyed you guys uh, talking about some of the the CUSA news and notes that went on over the – really the month of December, I guess, Eric. No, huge shout out to Shane Marinelli of 247 Sports of Owls 247 for jumping on. Shane and I, you know, longstanding friends down here in South Florida. So great guy. Appreciate him jumping on the podcast, especially while we had the opportunity to have him. Um, and he's wanted to do this for a while. He's definitely wanted to uh, talk the broader CUSA landscape. So glad Shane could fill in. He was happy to do so. Me too. And excited to get back to the kind of usual programming. I, I cleared my head a little bit of anything and everything work related. I felt like I owed that to myself and, and to my now wife uh, for, for that month uh, or for that two week or so span rather. Uh, but, you know, Eric, I'm, I'm bummed you couldn't come, but um, you were, the plan was you were going to go visit some family in, in Jamaica <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the the old the old COVID gods had other plans, correct? So what happened was, yeah, I feel like that is <laughs> absolutely the uh, absolutely the best way to sum up what was my my holidays. Yeah, the 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 plan the plan was the reason I I was not going to be able to make your wedding was my my father uh, moved back to Jamaica, um, and the plan was to go spend the holidays there, right? Which of course someone who lives in Florida, right? It's almost like doubling off on doubling up on a gift. You know, in December, it's 80, 85 degrees anyhow down here, but then you just get to go down to paradise. Um, you know, not the same as someone who's coming from the Northeast and they get to escape for the holidays, but that was the plan. However, yours truly was not able to avoid the uh, Omarion variant. Sorry, the, the Omicron variant, not the Omarion variant. Uh, that's a little black Twitter humor. Hopefully that didn't go over Joe's head. If it did, we'll just keep it moving. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I ended up, I ended up uh, getting COVID, so I, I had to, to stay put, stay in place. Um, so yeah, that sucked. But listen, in the greater grand scheme of things, I am fine. So that's all that matters, considering um, you know what we're dealing with now for uh, gone damn near three years. So um, kind of sucks there, but. Yeah, all in all, I'm good. Uh, Joe's married. I'm good. We're all good. So. The Omarion variant. That's funny. Um, yeah, man, it's funny. When I listened to uh, the pod that you and Shane did, um, just the way you said, like, wish I could go, like, I'm like, he made it sound like I didn't invite him. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get some, like, I'm going to get some, like, DM just, like, trouble in paradise. <laughs> like, let, like, let me no, clarify that. Let me clarify because I, I, yeah. I actually can hear my voice as I said that. Uh, I was recording that podcast, Joe, I think maybe a day and a half after I actually started feeling like a human being again. So even talking was a uh, was a bit of a struggle. Even to get through that intro, I think I was breathing heavily, just running out of breath. So I probably said that in a tone of voice that sounded like, oh, wish I was invited. That's not what I what I meant. Uh, Joe invited me from long ago. 
<laughs> I mean, like, obviously I knew that, but like I said that, I'm like, that's what people are going to think <laughs> based on, based on that. Oh, but, but yeah, man, uh, the wedding was fun. Uh, special thanks to, uh, everybody that, that helped put that on. If they even listen to the show, I have no idea, but, um, it was great, man. And uh, one thing I learned about myself, I cannot drink bourbon anymore because uh, your boy blacked out a little bit <laughs> on uh, <laughs> on my wedding night. And I kept getting people coming up to me and basically saying things along the lines of, you said the most beautiful thing to me. It was so sweet. I will never forget it. <laughs> and I was like, man, I don't remember talking to any of these people. Like that's That's embarrassing for me. And then one of my buddies called me after the fact and I was like, let me guess i said something really sweet to you and you'll never forget it and they were like no you put me in a headlock and told me to declare you the mayor of chocolate town which i have no idea what that means or why that came into my brain at that moment but i wish we could find out like i wish i could transport myself into your brain at that point in time to know what that meant (laughs) (laughs) i have no idea some little like whiskey gremlin jumps into my brain is just like, I'm going to make crazy things happen and see, (laughs) just see what nonsense comes out of my mouth. Um, But that's, that's why I need to stick to beer and and clear alcohol, uh, which is not just for rich women on diet. It's contrary to what Ron Swanson (laughs) says. Um, But (laughs) uh, anyway, it was a good time. I did get to watch uh, all of CUS, all the CUSA bowl games. Hang, um, hang on, hang on, hang on, a, hang on a second, Joe. Hang on a second, Joe. We're doing something to fly. Joe has no idea that okay. I'm going to do this. So uh, this is me just surprising him. We're going to leave this in the episode. I am going to play, because uh-huh. this may not even be good audio, but we're going to try it. I'm going to play uh, the great video. Shout out to Huckleberry Wedding Films. I'm going to narrate this uh, wedding video I hear from Joe. Just a whole lot of swag right something here. something so magical about it. This is your bride's voice, right, Joe? Yes, yes, that's my wife. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to paint the scene here, guys. We are at Papa John Cardinals. Oh, we're not at Papa John's Cardinal Stadium. What's it called, Joe? <laughs> it's just called it's just called Cardinal Stadium now. We don't we don't really mess with Papa John no more. Thank you. Back to the video. We're at Cardinal Stadium. We've got a great scene here, right? We're looking at an empty stadium, you know, and all of a sudden looking at the field. Got to fly over here, and what do we have coming up? Joe Londrigan and his beautiful bride, right? So again, just listen. This swag that I thought Joe didn't have, he walks out full snoot in the fresh white sneakers, the ice cream joints, and he's got the confidence. He's looking out to the other side of the end zone and his bride, Samantha, she looks great, by the way, taps him on the shoulder. And Joe, with a Chris Chris Brown, Michael Jackson-esque turnaround, just slides right into his wife's arms and they look into each other each other's eyes and just embrace each other and again just a level of swag from joe there i mean look we squatted up here right joe's walking through we got 25 groomsmen samantha's about to walk through she's <laughs> squatted up we got like eight bridesmaids it's, it looked like a great time man looked like a great time so we're gonna link that video look that tweet somewhere in uh description of this podcast just so you can see how swag got my guy was for his <laughs> appreciate that once we get the full <laughs> video we'll we'll have to link that in there because i'm sure it will for one i was mic'd up the entire day uh so yeah. i was basically just making like a nonsensical like audio diary of like everything i was doing and good luck to our videographer having to sort through that i was just saying just just stupid things like that dog is brown 
Um, <laughs> like just, just to give him something to laugh at later. Um, but I'm sure in the actual video, you will just see, like, you could probably see it in my eyes. Like one is like looking straight ahead and the other one's kind of off to the side. Was I've just like had that much to drink at some point, but Oh man, that's, that was fun. And, uh, the white shoes, I'm I'm glad people like those. Those were those were a nice touch. I thought we gave those to uh, we gave a pair of those to everybody on our wedding party. So that was yeah, that, uh, I, all I about a, the three strip life. Yeah, I am a fan of that. Um, I am not gonna neither endorse nor deny whatever brand that was you just said, but I am a fan of um, uh, I'm a fan of giving shoes <laughs> at, at a wedding. I just went to a wedding where I was gifted shoes. As a member, um, this was what uh, September. I didn't. I didn't even make it to the wedding. I had to leave to cover it on Saturday, but still got the shoes as a gift. So huge fan of that. So now you may proceed with the podcast, sir. Ah, uh, good times. Um, over the break, I did get to watch uh, all of CUSA bowl games. Um, we've recapped most of them, but we still need to talk about the Frisco Bowl as well as the Frisco Football Classic. Uh, I believe on the last episode that you and I taped, we dubbed them the Dos Frisco's Bowls or Los Dos Frisco's Bowls, whichever, whichever, however we, whatever we called it, I don't remember. Uh, but unfortunately for UTSA, uh, definitely feeling the loss of like some 20 something players in that one as they lose to San Diego State, uh, 38 to 24. Uh, kept it interesting for most of the game, actually had a 14 to seven lead at the end of the first quarter. And uh, obviously, it being a six-point game, uh, did everything they could to uh, stay in it, despite not having uh, Sincere McCormick, and uh, as well as several other players, obviously. Uh, but good day for Frank Harris, 271 yards through the air, 22 of 36 for two touchdowns. Uh, did throw one interception. You know, I, I think if UTSA does have a lot of those players that they were missing in this one, this might have gone a different way. But, you know, I, I know that UTSA fans are obviously still very happy about the conference championship. I think they would have been obviously happier with an undefeated season. But, you know, it's I think just this game is going to be kind of a footnote on on the story of this season that UTSA fans are going to remember for a long time. No, Joe, I completely agree with you when you talk about as far as uh, a how many players they were missing and B overall. Yeah, I mean, it would have been great to go undefeated, right? I know I've said this on this podcast before about just how hard it is to do what UCF did for 26, 27 straight context of the, the contest. The number is escaping me right now. So I really hope, and again, I know I've said this before, I, I hope that we don't get in this environment where uh, a team starts out 5, 6, 7, and 0 when you measure it by, oh, well, they couldn't go undefeated, right? That is not take away from what this year meant to the success of UTSA football and to the future of it. We talked about, I mean, A, being ranked. B, or, or I shouldn't say A, because probably A is probably, you know, Jeff Trailer, but however you want to say it, Joe, like in these things in my mind, getting Jeff Trailer extended to get him locked in, being ranked, uh, getting Lisa Compost locked up, which again, all of UTSA athletics, but of course, you know, she did play a huge factor in football, getting the training facility, you know, built there in San Antonio. These are all things. And you couple that with the year that they had, it only serves to just put this, this program in the spotlight. And we know that Jeff Trow is, is a name. He's a rock star down there in Texas. I don't think he's going to have any issues um, kind of parlaying this year into future success. And we look at this game, San Diego State's no slouch, Joe. I mean, they their only losses on the year, they had 
you can almost call them disappointments per se, um, given how well they they played throughout the year. But they lost to Fresno State and Utah State. Came into the game what uh, twelve and eleven and two, I believe. So this was not a by any means a a team that couldn't play. I guess in my mind, the biggest surprise was Lucas Johnson. You know, coming out for career best three hundred thirty three yards, and I think that again is a byproduct of the guys from UTSA who chose to. Um, who chose not to play in this game. And then when you talk about Sincere McCormick and specificity, maybe you can hang on to that ball a little bit more, right? Do you have the ground game going? Look at the time possession here, 2209 for UTSA, almost 38 minutes for San Diego State. You know, if you have Sincere McCormick, you're going to be able to hang on to the, the rock a little bit more as you're pounding it, probably giving him 35, 36, 37 carries. So um, I guess overall in, in this little uh, soliloquy, I guess it just was a recipe for, for success for San Diego State and maybe a recipe for a loss for UTSA, but in no means and in no way does this loss, you know, put a damper on the season, at least for me. No, no. And to correct myself, I think I said it was a six point game. That's obviously not how math works. It was a 14 point game, 38 to 24. Um, but that's a solid point about the time of possession and how critical that was in this game. Uh, something else that, that caught my attention as I was rewatching the film, San Diego state blitzed a lot. They, I, they very much knew how good of a dual threat guy Frank Harris can be. And specifically how calm he is. And we've seen it a lot, how he responds to pressure. They took that and said, okay, well let's just bring just the max amount of pressure we can as much as we can. And it, it paid off to an extent. Obviously we saw him throw that one pick. Um, and then San Diego state just really uh, took advantage of every opportunity they had when they had the ball. And something else that I appreciate about San Diego state, their top two receivers, I think wore number 45 and number 96. That's, I don't, you know, I know we don't see those numbers commonly at the wide receiver spot, but it was fun to, to see it in this game a little bit too. But yeah, as as our own Steve Helwick said, although it concluded with a bitter ending, the 2021 season was still a memorable one for UTSA. <laughs> uh, I will not claim to be the writer that Steve Helwick is. I think he capped that one best uh, in terms of describing the, uh, the season for the Roadrunners. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully we will see uh, how UTSA rebounds from that in the offseason. They did already lose their offensive coordinator in Barry Lunny Jr. Uh, to Illinois, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But for now, let's move on to the Frisco Football Classic. Uh, in this one, entertaining game. 27 to 14 was the final as Miami of Ohio uh, beats North Texas in this one. Eric, the thing that I think surprised me more than it maybe should have, Miami's got some dudes. Uh, in <laughs> particular, Jack Sorensen. I think he's going to get a real shot in the NFL. Just a big physical receiver, always seemed to be able to make the play downfield. And, but for North Texas, they really did not have the passing game going the way that they needed to. And they really didn't have the run game going the way that they needed to either. I mean, their leading rusher was Austin Ani, and he only had 28 yards. That's not going to get it done at any level, really. I mean, that that was kind of my biggest takeaway. I mean, North Texas kind of built itself for most of this year as a team who had finally found a competent rushing attack, and then it was nowhere to be found in this game. Yeah, you mentioned the passing attack wasn't there. To me, that wasn't necessarily a giant surprise. This isn't a slide on Austin Ani. More or less, he's kind of been... 
pedestrian to a little bit above average throughout the entirety of the year. But we know for North Texas, it's been the run game that has done it for him. Right and sure, we're going to assume that not having DeAndre Torrey made a difference. A, you know, he didn't play in that game. B's chosen to pursue the uh, NFL, right? But still a team that when it came down to uh, Ikaka Ragsdale, I'm going to, I hope I'm saying that name right. I, I, I had it told to me uh, by uh, uh, Sonoy Valente of uh, the Mean Green podcast, and hopefully I'm getting that right. Nevertheless, you had him, you had Ayo uh, 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 Adaye and Isaiah Johnson, who all were backs who rushed for over five, 600 yards this year, right? So North Texas, if memory serves me correct, Joe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they led Conference USA in rushing by a wide margin. I believe it had over 3,000 yards on the ground this year. So the fact that you get 32 carries for 89 yards, that definitely was surprising. And, and listen, this could just be my own bias or perception here. I understand if North Texas were playing, you know, an, an opponent from the Mountain West or, you know, maybe a, a lower tier P5 opponent. Yes, the MAC has great football, but I, I, Joe, I didn't think the, I don't think the MAC and specifically Miami, Ohio here, has a type of talent that's just going to push North Texas offensive line around to the point where you're only averaging 2.8 yards a carry. So, you know, I, I, I probably should not do that, Joe, in the form of a backhanded compliment. I probably should just come out and say kudos to Miami, uh, to the Red Hawks for shutting down, you know, North Texas run game. That just was very unexpected on my end. So that certainly wasn't going to help things. A time of possession game. I think North Texas only had the ball for 20 minutes. The two turnovers didn't help things. So, Credit to Brett Gabbert and company. Of course, there's another Gabbert playing football, but nevertheless, another Gabbert quarterbacking at that. But nevertheless, North Texas took it on the chin. Yeah, I mean, listen, I could write a paper about why uh, the things that Miami University has done wrong in branding their football team and maybe why a lot of people overlooked them. But regardless, going into this game, Miami had the second best defense in the Mac second only to uh, Toledo, right? Like they only allowed uh, 300 points total all year. Um, And the gap between them and the third place team in central Michigan was 35 points. So again, this is a defense that has some talent as as much as the offense does. Um, They ran into, they're just, they're inconsistent was the big issue, I think, but Miami definitely not short of just big physical players on both sides of the ball that um, really gave North Texas a hard time. And we talked about the the turnovers as well for North Texas in this game. That, that's been a common theme for them uh, all season, unfortunately. And I think one thing that North Texas really needed to do in this game that they just didn't was like fix the mistakes that they've been, you know, making all year. Does that make sense? Like, when you go into a bowl game, I think you need to be like, all right, what do we do wrong all year? Let's make sure that we don't do that and finish the year on a high note. And that that really didn't seem to be the case. Yeah, yeah. And, and listen, uh, you make great points as far as Miami of Ohio having a really good defense overall, right? This was not a, a performance that was an anomaly in that regard. But <laughs> this was an anomaly of a performance in the run game for North Texas. So I guess, again, not having DeAndre Torrey certainly hurts and other reasons mentioned the two turnovers but just shockingly low numbers for a team that had such success down the down the stretch joe really quickly because you know i know we'll transition to other things do want to ask you this we talked about Mm -hmm. overall feeling on utsa's season what's your overall feeling on north texas's season because we know how they started the year right but you can't (coughs) sorry you can't say with this team that they didn't earn their way in yes 
they beat Southern Miss. Yes, they beat Rice. Yes, they beat FIU. None of those teams were particularly good last year. But they beat UTEP and a UTEP team that obviously uh, improved leaps and bounds. And then to go in and beat UTSA, that's the one that really had me sold. So just curious kind of your overall feeling. You know, in, in my mind, I think this was a game that UTSA losing wasn't going to do anything to their season in our minds. But at least in my mind, if Seth Luttrell could have capped the season with a win, it, it <laughs> I don't want to overstate this, but it just would have left a different taste in my mouth heading into the offseason. I completely agree. So you look at what North Texas did this season, and you're right. I don't want to take away too much from what this team did accomplish because at the end of the day, they accomplished something that three teams have done since 1936, I believe, which is start the season uh, one in six or worse and still make a bowl game. Um, and they were able to do that. They really turned it on in that second half of the season and rattled off, uh, I believe, those five straight wins in order to uh, to get this bowl win with, obviously, that game against UTSA being the highlight there. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it's interesting that you bring up how different of a feeling we would have about this program had they won this game. Going into that contest... Uh, Seth Luttrell's record at North Texas was 37 and 37, perfectly average. Now with this loss, he's obviously 37 and 38. And I think at a time where North Texas is getting ready to move to the American and in the opinion of many getting that upgrade, uh, at least in terms of profile, it's hard to imagine them keeping him when they make that transition, especially if uh, 2022 goes similarly, because you look at his seasons here, a has not won a bowl game. Um, although he's qualified for one uh, five out of his six years so far, but only won more than six games uh, twice. And that was in 2017, 2018. And I think a lot of people would, would uh, point to Mason fine as the reason those teams were so good. Um, so I think 2022 is going to be especially critical for Seth Luttrell in terms of his job security and determining where North Texas football goes from here. Just because, again, I think the way that this season went at the beginning and at the very end in this game against Miami, I'd be very surprised if there was not a growing sense of frustration amongst the greater North Texas fan base with Seth Luttrell right now. I think it's an interesting point you raise when you talk about where this program is going heading into the American. It's, I'll put it to you this way. I think, I think we'll, we'll learn kind of what North Texas sees himself as if they have another six and seven, five and Five and wow, math is hard for me here tonight. Okay, uh, six and seven, uh, or a five and seven type year, or you know, even even a seven and six. Right? Um, here's why I say this, Joe. You said he's thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Um, forgive me for putting you on the spot, but which conference USA head coach currently standing does that remind you of? Rick Stockstill. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and Rick Stockstill's <laughs> been in Middle Tennessee a very long time. So, and listen, I, I'm not advocating for Rick Stockstill or Seth Luttrell to be fired. My point is, 
at Middle Tennessee, that's been enough um, to get him extensions. And some people, listen, personally, I'm a Stock fan. Um, I think that Rick Stock still, the years that he leads his team to seven and six, ain't nobody have them at seven and six, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. the could could be the saving grace. But nevertheless, he's still there going on 15 years. So I think if they're faced with another year like they have this year and going into the American, um, I don't know about you, Joe, but I think that that could say, you know, maybe that North Texas feels they have a higher ceiling than seven, eight wins, especially going to a, a, a higher profile conference. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine North Texas's ceiling being higher than what we saw when they had Graham Harrell as the offensive coordinator and Mason Fine at quarterback, especially given how we've seen, you know, Latrell, you know, the record that this team has put up without those guys. And <laughs> I don't know, I guess if we're, if we're dragging Rick Stockstill into this conversation now, I have a lot of respect for him as a, as a man and as a person. I don't know that he still should be the the coach. I mean, if MTS, whatever MTSU wants to do, that's on them. But I don't know. It's it's hard to imagine why, especially in the midst of North Texas, getting the chance to, you know, get a better media deal, get more national exposure that you would want a coach who, or rather you would want to set the expectation that average is okay. Right? Like it's hard for me to imagine that flying, at a program in the state of Texas, especially with a program that's been FBS for as long because middle Tennessee has been FBS for significantly less time. Or am I, or am I imagining that? You said it's significantly less time than North Texas. I believe middle Tennessee yeah. went FBS in 2004. I will have to check that on the fly here. They were an independent in 99. Okay. And then North Texas was... Yeah, so the so Middle Tennessee went went FBS full, fully in a, um, or at least in conference affiliated in 01. So yeah, um, okay. And North Texas has been FBS since always. It yeah, looks like. Like, like a while, like even the Mean Joe Green days, right? Uh, yeah, they were the FBS FCS merger went into effect in like the late seventies, I believe, and. Yeah, they were an independent, and then they joined the Big West in 96, and then they were in the Sun Belt starting in 01. So yeah, they've been FBS for a significantly longer amount of time. And and I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like North Texas deserves to have higher expectations for themselves, given how much longer they've had a football program and how much longer that university has had time to, to grow and to put money into athletics and the football program specifically. There's a reason North Texas is getting this chance to go to the American while Middle Tennessee like couldn't even afford to buy themselves out of CUSA and join the Mac. <laughs> that that is fair. I don't know. I don't I don't feel like those two situations are comparable. Like I feel like Middle Tennessee is in a situation where if there was a better alternative to putting up, you know, to to put it to fielding average teams year after year they would take it. And I think North Texas has that opportunity if they wanted to make a change. I'm not, you know, by all means, let Latrell finish his contract. He's got one more year. He's it, it expires in 23. And if he proves he can really succeed, then go for it, extend him for a little bit longer and then see what happens in the American. But 
because they they have the the resources to to do that more so than than some of these other G five teams. I, I I won't um I won't bog down this podcast with what is North Texas versus what is Middle Tennessee. I will just say this: this is the opinion of me, Eric Henry. I believe that North Texas is a higher ceiling than Middle Tennessee, and I've had this conversation with various Conference USA, you know, people, yeah, um, in various places. Until I think you may have said this, Joe. Until mm-hmm. the Nashville suburbs expand into, well, like Murfreesboro isn't is, is a suburb, but until the Nashville suburbs expand into Bowling Green, we're talking about Western Kentucky, another fifty years. Um, it, it, you know, that's not Nashville, right? It's the same thing here with with Middle Tennessee. Um, so yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Like, I, I think if you're a Mean Green fan, there's probably higher expectations than Middle Tennessee. At least my opinion, what they should be. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I think you were the one actually that said uh, we we. I remember us talking about it, but we were talking about media markets within the American added right. those six teams and. Bowling Green not being a great TV market, um, but yeah. But Frisco Football Classic. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it was it was an entertaining game. I do commend the people that threw that together as quickly as they did. That's not an easy task, um, and who knows if we'll see it again. Uh, but it got the job done. Again, congrats to North Texas on getting to a bowl game. Congrats to Miami for winning. Uh, we'll see what happens with both these programs. And I think that is where we will move into a discussion about transfers and the overall uh, transfer portal. So, Eric, when we talked about this last time, you or we talked about this last week, you talked about like whether or not the portal like is free agency. Do you, do you want to do that before we talk into, go into specific players or after? No, I mean, we can talk about that right now. Cause, I mean, I, I won't belabor it too long. I've already written about this. And I, listen, I don't want to sound like I'm – Nostradamus, but I, I wrote a piece for UDD three years ago. The context of it was talking about <laughs> how Conference USA and specificity had been rated by Power Five teams, right? And how essentially that the group of five schools were turning into a breeding ground for P5 talent, right? And Joe, that again, I don't want to sit there and toot my own horn, but that's held true now three years later. We're looking at a place, and we'll talk about some of the the transfers, we'll save that for later in the podcast. But the point of it is you have power five schools every time you look and they're pulling from the group of five. That's because it just in terms of high school recruiting, it is so hard to hit on every single player. Inevitably, there are going to be cracks that fall through, right? And what happens is um, the group of five end up, ends up serving as the minor leagues, right? And now it's kind of with the the transfer portal, which was not completely what it is now back on the piece three years ago you now have the minor leagues but then you also have free agency right where you have and we'll talk about a player who went from team to team within the conference later on we're talking about transfers but joe how many times have you seen this year just in this cycle true freshmen entering the portal and that's just because they get there and realize oh wait a minute the coach who recruited me isn't here all right i'm out or in the case of UCF and Dylan Gabriel, the coach who recruited me and, and the system isn't, isn't here and the system is, isn't necessarily what fits for me, I'm out. And not only am I out and I go to UCLA, oh, wait a minute, you mean there's an opportunity? My former OC's at Oklahoma? All right, I'm out again. Um, and of course, Dylan Gabriel you know, hadn't enrolled in any classes. So 
that was just a, you know, a, a commitment to go to UCLA. It wasn't like he actually transferred again, but you get the point. So yeah, we are looking at free agency and God bless him. I have no issue with it. As long as coaches can up and leave at the drop of a dime, drop of a hat. I think that's the uh, idiom. I, I hate idioms. Nevertheless, um, why can't players? I really have no argument. Um, I think it's just weird that people didn't want to see this when this has been a thing in in sports all the time. Like, I mean, to draw an example to to soccer, like Leo Messi played at Newell's Old Boys in Argentina as you know as a as a young man from 1995 to 2000, and then Barcelona came in and said, "How this guy slipped through the cracks and." paid him and his family a, a, a ton of money. And then he went to Spain and became one of the best ever. And I think pretty much the same thing can happen with pretty much any sport, right? Like it's just, it's interesting to me that people are fighting it so much, especially here in the United States where that's how pretty much every industry works. Is it not like you start out at a smaller company, you do well, you prove your worth and then you try to see, I mean, you you then have the choice of like, do you work as hard as you can to be a quote unquote company man and see where it it takes you, or do you, you know, try to get a bigger paycheck from a, a larger corporation? Like that's always been how the economy works, and that's I don't know. I mean, I think people wanted to believe that there's that that uh, what do you call like college is that like safe haven for kids, and it, it never has been in any other. Per- profession so it's it's interesting um that people wanted to keep this this free agency model out of out of sports for as long as they did but yeah i have no problem with it i think it just means that these smaller schools are gonna have to find unique ways to you know up their game and create cultures where people don't want to leave and for the most part i think the response that we've seen from you know 95 percent of coaches has been that you know like we realize how this changes the game. Um, I think it was uh, the, Louisiana's new coach, Michael DeSormu, was like, I have no problem with guys doing what they think is best. I'm not going to agree with every guy, uh, every guy's decision to leave. But at the end of the day, if you don't want to be here, why would I want you here? And I think a lot of coaches feel that way. Joe, I saw this tweet and you know, I'll transition after this because I think there's this feeling, Joe, that guys went to the transfer portal. Um, they're disloyal, right? As if there's some measure of loyalty within sports, especially college sports, right? We like to look at our college athletes and say, player X went to school Y for the school, right? They say they went to the school as fans, as alum. You say they went to the school for the same reasons I went to went there, right? Because I walked in the student union for the first time and I thought it was amazing. Or I saw the dorms on campus. I saw the, you know, the frat houses and I felt like it was home. It's, it's, it's horse crap. It's not, it's not why they went to your school. They went to your school because right. they were offered a scholarship. And, and at this level, the Division I FBS level, they believe that they're going to go pro. Now, that's an entire different discussion as to whether how, as to how many of them will go pro, right? But nevertheless, that's a lot of kids' dreams. I know this because I cover a school and talk to these kids regularly, right? But I, I just want to read this tweet from Kara Ritchie who does a great job down there in Jonesboro, Arkansas, 95.3 The Ticket, uh, hosts a weekday show Monday through Friday down there in Jonesboro. She said, her tweet is, quote, I hope coaches don't let players who enter the transfer portal come back. Quote, end quote. Yeah, okay. Like you haven't gone out and applied slash interviewed for a job. 
then ended up sticking with your original employer. It, it's all it is. So when I hear this venom about these guys are traitors and don't let them back and so on and so forth, it just makes us all big hypocrites in my mind. So more power to these kids having power, <laughs> you know, no pun intended. I literally did that today. <laughs> like, so why, like, why I would be the biggest hypocrite in the world if I got mad at a college athlete for just seeing what other opportunities exist. Again, I don't think every player that's entered the transfer portal up to this point has made the best decision. Um, and we'll probably get into that. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later. But at the end of the day, that's that's their decision. And I think ultimately it's going to benefit the sport in the long run. This might be a little dark, but I think it's going to benefit the sport in the long run to see these kids make that mistake and ultimately not maximize their potential so that, you know, recruits in the class of 2025, 2026 and on will understand that just because there are these opportunities doesn't mean you have to take them in order to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Again, I, I do not want to bog down this podcast because we have, so got to get into some transfers, you know, uh, of this year, but yeah. certainly a lot of, a lot of places we can go with this discussion. Sure. So with that, then let's talk about Grant Wells. Um, that's probably the biggest uh, name within conference USA that has um, since entered and left the portal. Um, of course, Marshall quarterback left the herd and will now be, the quarterback at Virginia Tech, which is interesting. I think some people were thinking that Marshall and West Virginia were just going to swap starting quarterbacks because both those guys like jumped into uh, the portal at the same time and following the the West Virginia media for that week was <laughs> really funny. But ultimately, you know, do want to point this out. Um, there was an article uh, talking about uh, Grant. Um, I, I won't mention the name of the writer, but there was a, a widely circulated article that said, you know, social media, you know, abuse and whatever um, led Wells to the decision to transfer. He has since rebuked that, um, said he never felt anything but love from Marshall fans. With that being said, this is one of those ones that I didn't quite understand. Whereas I do think Grant he had all these opportunities to really lead Marshall to do something special. And I don't think it was, it's obviously not solely on him. I think the, the coaching staff and the rest of the team obviously played a part in Marshall, not winning the East or really, you know, living up to the potential that they had the past three years, really. But obviously as the quarterback, a lot of the mistakes and miscues that Grant Wells made are a big part of that equation. That being said, I don't know. I think he could have stuck it out and maybe changed his game a little bit. I think as like a true pocket guy, I don't know how much more potential he really had other than what we already saw. But now making the move to Virginia Tech, I don't understand how that's a better situation for him. But ultimately, I'm not in his shoes, so I, I can never truly know. But from a from an X's and O's standpoint, it doesn't seem like a great move, in my opinion, but we'll see. Well, Joe, and forgive me for, you know, I, I, I try not to intentionally just like, you know, throw a monkey wrench in something you said. Um, but I, I think by all means, I think, I think you kind of hit, I don't want to say the nail on the head because only Grant Wells knows why he transferred. Right. And first off, shout out to Emily Van Buskirk, our own Emily Van Buskirk, who had that days before as far as where he was going, going to Virginia Tech. But nevertheless, I am going to name the, the author of that article. It's Chuck Landon, who's a longtime columnist there in Huntington. 
Um, the only reason I'm naming him is because I, I think people should read the article. I, when I saw it, I read it. And again, Grant knows whether or not social media had a fact in, uh, factored him leaving. He has, as you mentioned, come out and vehemently pushed back against that. And that's his statement, right? Um, but Joe, I do think if you read the piece, and I'm not saying whether you have or haven't, I'm just imploring people to read it. The article makes fear points on a broad spectrum, not talking about Grant Wells, but in a broad spectrum about the effects of social media in today's landscape. Now, why do I mention that? Let me just ask you this. And again, I hate to do the, the speculation game, especially when a kid has come out, I will say it again, and said that that had no factor in him leaving. Given what we know about Grant Wells, someone who is from, you know, West Virginia, uh, seemingly wanted to be at Marshall, you know, growing up and, and whatnot, and having a measure of success. I even, when I wrote about uh, his transfer, in my mind, anyone who's listening to this podcast knows I'm big on Grant Wells, had a chance to see him in person, and was impressed by his size, his athleticism. I think, and I think Virginia Tech brought in two quarterbacks this cycle, but I think Grant Wells will go in there and, and win the job and flourish. But Joe, do you, is, it, is it too far of a stretch to think that given the level of scrutiny, because Joe, we saw it, right? We're not in Huntington message boards and Marshall message boards all the time, or maybe at all, but we exist in the Conference USA space. I know we've seen social media criticism of Grant Wells in, in specificity down the stretch of the 2021 season, or excuse me, down the 2020 season. It, it, it doesn't seem like when we're trying to assess how we ended up from the guy who was freshman of the year, great story, you know, home state guy playing at Marshall, two-year starter. I think he, off the top of my head, I have not looked at his numbers. I think it was 16 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, uh, 3,500 yards. How we go from that to him being no longer there, it, it doesn't seem like it's too far-fetched. And again, I will close it by saying Grant Wells came out and vehemently denied that. But it just doesn't seem as if a 20, 21-year-old kid, it's not preposterous to think that, that you know, he can – he isn't going to have rabbit ears. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair thought, but it really doesn't seem like he's on social that much or like participating too much. Fair. So I, I think there's some validity to his perspective in, in that it, it didn't pay that big of a um, uh, it, it wasn't that big of a factor in his decision. And we see athletes uh, do that a lot, just kind of get off social during the season. I mean, I think, again, we're just speculating at this point, but I think part of it probably had something to do with the fact that you look at Marshall's offense the last couple of years, and I think in both those cases, the X factor on those offenses, it wasn't Grant Wells. It was Brendan Knox, and then this year it was uh, Rasheen Elite. And I think just there were so many good pieces on Marshall's offense from – the receivers down to the tight ends, down to that offensive line, to the halfbacks, to the fullbacks, like all those pieces were so solid. So when you look at Marshall's complete body of work and the fact that they, they weren't able to clinch the division, they weren't able to, you know, win their bowl game uh, against Louisiana this year. Like those mistakes stick out when you have, you know, running backs who were as successful as Knox and Ali were when you have, you know, offensive line who are getting all of this, um, 
you know, very high praise. You had Kane Madden transfer to, to Notre Dame, which is, you know, a, an offensive line factory, more or less. Uh, you have Alex Mullet uh, coming out this year, who's going to be, a, a, I think, a, one of the higher offensive line draft picks. Um, you have all those guys. So I, I think I'm sure social was a small part of that in some perspective, but ultimately I don't blame him for looking at the team around him and getting down on himself maybe. And again, we're speculating, but I think when, when you look at Marshall's body of work, his mistakes stick out, unfortunately, but that comes with the quarterback position. Yeah, no, listen, um, they, his mistakes do stick out. Uh, I do want to mention something that, that I, I thought was a fair point on your part. When I saw Grant Wells' Twitter, it hadn't been many tweets from there in a long time. Uh, it, it seemed like from the duration of this year or something to that effect. So clearly he is someone who's managed to stay off of social media, right? So I want to emphasize that. But yeah, I, it, I, it'll be an interesting conversation going forward because I just wonder how his tenure will be remembered. And it's, again, why I wrote this. Took him to back-to-back bowl games, you know. So it wasn't as if they were talking about someone who went three and nine two straight years. No, and I like I. Grant Wells is not a bad quarterback, and you mentioned his athleticism and his size. Like he has all the physical tools, and again, he displays a lot of the technical ability that you want. But when it came to high-pressure situations during his time at Marshall, he simply did not deliver for Doc Holliday or for Charles Huff. So, again, I, I don't blame him for wanting a fresh start based on that kind of thing alone and maybe getting in his own head a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good place to leave it. All right. With that, then let's talk about Western Kentucky and had a great year this year. Obviously, uh, Bailey Zappi broke the touchdown record, broke the yardage record. Reloading for next year is going to be a very, very tall task, uh, not just because Bailey Zappi and Jareth Stearns are leaving for the NFL. Uh, they also lost Zach Kitley to Texas Tech. They lost Brian Ellis uh, to Georgia Southern. And they lost a lot of talent all around. Uh, Mitchell Tinsley, who had a, a huge kind of second half of the season, uh, he is transferring to Penn State. Uh, Mason Brooks, who was uh, <laughs> one of their stronger pieces on the offensive line, uh, still in the portal, getting a lot of P5 attention. We'll see where he ends up. Uh, Beanie Bishop on defense uh, committed to Minnesota as of uh, as of today or yesterday, depending on uh, when that timestamp is. I don't have it in front of me, but I know he committed to Minnesota. Tall task to, to rebuild for Western Kentucky. And hopefully having the success that they did this year helps them uh, go out and recruit and get some of these guys to help replace that. But they're going to have to do it very quickly. And I think that's one thing that is going to prove to be very difficult for some of these coaching staffs in terms of just having to build very quickly. Um, And we kind of knew it was going to happen with G5s anyway. But within the realm of Conference USA, it's going to be very tough for Western to rebuild uh, or reload rather so quickly when they're losing a lot of their star guys. It's interesting. I don't know that I see it the same way. And I just would point to the jump from Western Kentucky 2020, you know, to 2021 or excuse me, 2020. What year is it from Western Kentucky 2020 to 2021? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, listen, I if there's one thing that's been shown, 
you can build through the portal pretty quickly. In my mind, the biggest thing is the offensive identity. Does that stay the same? I don't think there's any reason to believe that they will shift in offensive identity. Again, when you recruit a player like you do in terms of uh, uh, the kid McDonald, I'm forgetting his first name right now, uh, out of Washington, the backup quarterback, someone who played in a air raid offense in high school, right? So they could have recruited for the system. I think they can do it. Mm -hmm. And here's why I say this. You talk about Mitchell Tinsley going to Penn State and, uh, you know, the um, first offensive line was escaping Mason Brooks, you know, who's getting power five interest and whatnot. Joe, these are all, no disrespect to Mitchell Tinsley, who was a, a solid player, um, believe he was a JUCO guy before he got to Western Kentucky, led the team in receiving yards and, rece and receptions in 2020. Now, granted, those was a much lower output than he had this year. But again, no disrespect to Mitchell Tinsley, but he wasn't Mitchell Tinsley that was going to Penn State until the system got there, right? I'm not saying these guys are system players. What I'm saying is, if what Tyson Helton is doing is sustainable, and in my mind it is in reference to this offensive philosophy and how it'll produce wins and, you know, kind of the offense will help the defense in certain regards. I don't see any reason why they can't build through the portal. A guy I was very, and I'm sure you as someone who, uh, you know, follows Western Kentucky a lot. Jaden Hunter was a guy who, a former five-star recruited Georgia. When he got there, I think he got there, what, in, in 2020, right? When he got there, I was expecting him to take a spot in the starting lineup immediately. That didn't happen, but this year he responded well. So it just goes to show, you can find guys in the portal. In my mind, it's going to be, does this offensive philosophy stay the same? And again, we believe it will. And uh, it's Chance McDonald. I believe his first name is Chance. Uh, it's just been a long day. So this is a name I know nine times out of the 10, and now I can't remember his first name. But nevertheless, if he takes that next step and wins this job and, and plays well, I, I don't see any reason that they can't quickly rebuild through the portal. I don't think they'll have uh, much difficulty at all, especially given you know how they were doing this year. And, and especially, Joe, those running backs. got to remember, the running backs on this team, Noah Whittington, um, first year, I think freshman or redshirt freshman. So definitely some talent there. It can be done. Uh, Western Kentucky did already add uh, an offensive line, uh, a great offensive lineman from South Carolina and Vinnie Murphy uh, to help replace some of that depth. Uh, that they're losing to the draft and to uh, the transfer portal. I guess I'm more concerned about how they're going to replace the coaches because they lost Zach Kitley, who I think was a huge part of why that air raid was so successful this year, as well as uh, Stephen Hamby, who was their offensive line coach. Um, and he left for Texas Tech also. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying getting all these guys in here and being able to build that chemistry so quickly, it's it's going to be tough. But then again, they did the exact same thing last year. It's just going to be a matter of can lightning strike twice. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, I don't want to. I know you're not saying they they can't, right? I know you're just a, a little a little. You're a little skeptical. You're a little wait and see. Whereas I'm a little more optimistic based on what I've seen from this past year. Listen, I was excited about the Mike Sanford hire when it first got announced. So of course I'm skeptical. <laughs> Fair point. Which, speaking of which, Junior Adams now is the offense coordinator at Oregon. Good luck with that. But anyway, let's see. Let's talk about uh, some of FIU's transfers. Um, obviously, FIU had a lot of guys leave, um, but they did reload with some quality names uh, coming into the portal. Um, they did just get that receiver from Syracuse today. Um, Eric, tell me what is going on with FIU right now in terms of, uh, you know, 
their transfer portal situation and guys who want to come in and play for Mike McIntyre. Yeah. Well, again, this is something and listen, we'll sure we'll have Mike McIntyre, coach McIntyre on the podcast at a later date to talk about his own philosophy. Some of the guys he got in terms of younger players were in the deep South, right? Of course he has recruiting ties there, you know, from his time at Memphis and, you know, being a Nashville guy. Right. But yeah, when you look at the transfer portal, I think there was a little bit of, I don't want to say fear or worry per se, but there, there was starting to be a little bit of angst amongst the FIU faithful. Of course, they, they are a very unique fan base that they hadn't really seen any names brought in, right? Uh, that was something that uh, in terms of big time names, right? You know, you had uh, a couple of guys from NAIA ranks. You had an FCS, I believe an FCS All-American in Donovan Manuel from Eastern Tennessee State, uh, linebacker, but hadn't seen any of those power five transfers, which we've come become so accustomed to, right? But yeah, you look at the past few days, and I'll run down the names. First, you got to start with Willie Reed, Joe, who was a all-MAC first-team player in 2020 at Central Michigan, so uh, as a safety. So that, that's an interesting name. Uh, they get Pierce Withers back, Joe. Why is that notable? Uh, do you remember the conversation we had regarding uh, Everett Withers and his comments regarding FIU is on the way at the door? How could I forget? <laughs> so Pierce Withers is coming back, and Pierce Withers, when I, I tweeted that uh, a source told me that he would be returning to FIU, he quote tweeted that tweet saying, you know, there's business to, I, I'm paraphrasing, there's business to handle, I'm all in, We gonna, there's going to be better time. So clearly Pierce Withers is, uh, is bought into FIU, and he played well last year, so that's a big pickup. But you talk about some of the guys from Syracuse, Sherrod Johnson is a receiver they got from Syracuse. Jacoby Hewitt, they got a receiver from Indiana. Uh, Letary Kinsler, a defensive end from, from Syracuse. Josiah Miaman, a tight end from Iowa. And then here's the name that I think you got to keep an eye on. And it has not been officially announced. All of my sources uh, reported this. I think I reported this first. I think Walter Villa from the Miami Herald was second. Uh, and a few others came in after, after that. Gunnar Holmberg, Joe, the former Duke starter, started I believe eight games last year, threw for 2,300 yards, uh, 2,358, uh, seven touchdowns, eight picks on the year. It was a three-star recruit coming out of high school. So you bring in another veteran player, another veteran quarterback into a quarterback room that has a highly touted three-star guy in Grayson James and a highly touted three-star guy in Hayden Carlson um, who came in in back-to-back years. So you now have a veteran, someone who has one year left of, el- one year left, excuse me, of eligibility, um, in in conjunction with some of the uh, the younger quarterbacks who have not played a snap, and it's it's interesting because I, I wrote just a couple of days ago that FIU was facing the prospect of opening the season for the first time since the Alex Magoo era uh, with a quarterback who hasn't appeared in the game, and boom, they, they end up with a quarterback. And last but not least, uh, they get Syracuse defensive back Jaden Cole. So three players from Syracuse arrive at FIU. So it's interesting, you know, definitely something to keep an eye on in terms of the broader from the broader conference USA landscape. Clearly Mike McIntyre's approach to the lack of just sheer players, not lack of talent, just lack of bodies on the FIU roster has been to take veterans. I think that's smart, Um, especially coming in now. I think you, Wick, we saw the issues that FIU had with depth, and I think you want to do everything you can to avoid that especially starting out while you get the culture established. Right. Um, I don't know. Do you agree with that? Like there have been, there's kind of a difference in building through the portal when you have a coaching change. I personally think it's kind of a necessity. Um, Historically, you see recruiting classes come in right after coaching changes be particularly lean. 
So I think like that's where the portal is like super helpful for some of these programs. Like, do you agree that that's like a good practice? <laughs> I think it depends. Joe, I generally think for each program, it's different. The reason I hesitate is when you look at FIU, they're such an anomaly. You know, they had somewhere between 40 and 50 scholarship players left at the end of, of last year. And for those of you who may not know, the limit is 85. So you're talking about nearly half of your roster um, being nuked. And that doesn't mean you only have 40 players. Of course, you have walk-ons, but um, I'm talking about scholarship players. I, that's drastic. Not every team is going to be in that scenario. I look at – it's it, man. I'm, I'm just all over the place. It's so different. Look at Western Kentucky, right? You would agree, and I'm asking here, when Tyson Hilton made these moves, it's we're in win-now mode, right? Undoubtedly, when he made those moves last year. Yeah, I mean, especially with the addition of all the kids from Houston Baptist as well as Zach Kitley. Right. Like so you knew you like you knew that was a short-term solution. Yeah. Right. So I think you can take a look at it from that perspective and say, okay, we're bringing in vets. We've got to win now. But if you're say a Texas state, right, who went all transfer portal in their class, you see that necessarily payout necessarily in wins, right? So I'm of the belief that it really depends on what you expect from your roster. And listen, man, if you can get five, six, seven, eight, nine guys, if you're an FIU, an FAU, a Texas State, um, of course, they're not coming to USA, but a UTSA in North Texas, when you come from a bigger state that's known for having a lot of football talent and you can get seven, eight, nine guys who maybe started out, even if it's for one year, Joe at a different school and realize, oh man, I'd really rather be home. This isn't for me. There's an option, the transfer portal. I would rather go that route and buy in on undeveloped talent as opposed to necessarily um, going transfer portal and having to bring in all vets, right? Or even, even for this year, and only in this year, only applicable for this year with the, the rule that you can bring in seven additional players to the 25. Man, why not hit the high school ranks pretty heavily? Because you know they're going to get overlooked with the portal this year, right? Yeah, you would think like that's something that I saw when uh, the season was starting to wrap up. I forget who um, some assistant coach on Twitter was basically talking about how each of these high school kids now have to compete with every other college football player in terms of recruiting, because that's more or less how it is with the portal now, because, you know, why, like, again, why would they take you and, essentially bet on being able to develop you in a year and a half, two years, whatever it is, when they have a guy from a JUCO or from an FCS team or whatever, who's ready to win now. So like, again, I don't think that's a great long-term solution. I don't think I like at a certain point, like that's how you're going to get, you know, burnout on your staff is when you have to keep like going out and finding new players with that sense of immediacy. I think like Troy's a good example. Again, like, you know, they didn't make that higher until later in the year when their recruiting class of like five kids was already set. And now they have like six weeks or eight weeks or whatever it is until the other signing day to basically like build a class. Like it's not sustainable long-term, but I think it's something that it's a skill that a lot of these, you know, recruiting coordinators and these assistant coaches are going to have to build uh, very quickly in order to just remain competitive. Yeah, I, and, and you know, I'll kind of cap it on this. I, I think it's an interesting skill that they'll have to have, but I'll flip it to you this way. We say this about NFL coaches all the time, right? <laughs> you, at the NFL, you got, what, 
35, 40% of your roster is going to turn over and with due to attrition, um, you know, trades, free agency, otherwise retirements, anyhow, same concept here. Yeah. And again, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about. Uh, college football was already a business. It's just kind of growing into the same model that more or less every other business already follows. Um, so double-edged sword, but um I think that's a good uh, place to leave it on that note. Did want to touch on some assistant attrition within CUSA. Uh, Barry Lenny Jr. going to Illinois. Um, interesting that Illinois gets the guy from the G5 team that beat them earlier in the year. Um, looks like no other assistants from UTSA are going to follow uh, Lenny to Illinois. But um, I think that's a good... W- one thing that's interesting about what Jeff Trailer's building right now is he's only promoting from within. And the reason for that, uh, according to him was it's much easier to create buy-in when you do that and get guys to basically work harder and want to be a part of something. And I, I love that. I absolutely love that. But yeah, I think that was the biggest loss for UTSA. I know UAB, lost some assistance as well. Um, I'm trying to find those in my notes. But I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on uh, Trailer's philosophy there, Eric, while I try to find my notes here? No. It, listen, if you know Jeff Trailer, you know, kind of his his ascension from being a Texas high school coach, and then, you know, maybe at one point in his career, maybe you think the peak for him, someone who was a Texas native and was a longtime Texas high school head coach, is getting a role on the staff at Texas. But seemingly he works as well. Not seemingly he 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 works his way up, and now seemingly uh, has what is considered his dream job with a great program at UTSA. I think his background is such that lends itself to think he's going to try to promote the next guy from within, as opposed to trying to look. That's not to say you know if there was a better option out there it, that he believed was a better option, I'm sure he'd do his best for his team. But there's something that I really like about him giving guys on his staff the opportunity, right? And I think that, I don't know. I mean, you let me know if I'm grasping the straws here. Um, but I think when you have the hotshot coach who became an assistant at 23, 24, 25, and a coordinator at 27 and got their first job at 31, maybe they don't see it the same way as far as promotion. You know, maybe they're more of you bounce around from spot to spot and you go out and get someone. So again, I that could I could be reading way too much into it, but I, that just seems from what we seem to know of Jeff Trailer, like that would be of his philosophy. That would be his philosophy, and uh, would love to have him on the podcast. You know, later on this uh, this off season to maybe ask him about that. Absolutely, hope we can get him in here and get his take on uh, just everything that he's uh, experienced there. Um, but uh, so UAB losing their assistant coach in. Richard Owens, uh, he is on the move to Georgia Southern, it would seem. He's in, he's done a fantastic job with that UAB offensive line. So replacing him and getting somebody in to uh, you know take on that job is going to be tough for Bill Clark's squad, especially considering how important that position group was. And then I believe didn't their tight end coach leave as well? Uh. He went to like a p5 team i thought i don't have that in my notes but i, I could be wrong we can we can you know we can always correct it on the fly we, we can go like throwback pti joe where you know tony reality used to you know the fact check at the end we can we can do that 
Oh, yeah. I forgot they did that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the UAB tight end coach I was thinking of was Joe Craddock. Uh, spent the last two seasons as UAB's tight end coach. Obviously did a great job uh, molding guys such as Garrett Prince in that position for the Blazers. He will be the new offensive coordinator at Troy uh, under John Summerall. So interested to see where that career path takes him after the spectacular job he's done at UAB as well as uh, some other places along, along his career, SMU, Arkansas, etc. But... Yeah, some transitions amongst CUSA. Uh, we'll see who of those coaches uh, gets replaced by somebody who can follow up to what they did. Um, it's interesting, but at the beginning of the year, I think we were, well, I mean, I guess the two don't really go hand in hand. I was going to say we were talking about CUSA basically being in a really tough spot with all of the teams leaving and uh, the league really needing to find its way forward. But at the same time, all of these teams that, you know, found ways into, you know, the American and the Sun Belt and, and everything like that. Uh, the question really wasn't whether or not they were good. And I think they really proved that with, um, you know, their performances and the fact that they were able to get some of their coaches into get them promoted and get them into P5 jobs and, and bigger opportunities throughout the country. No, no, un- undoubtedly. And I think that that goes to speak to the success of the program and, you know, really how well regarded some of these, you know, coaches, guys like Bill Clark and Jeff Trailer and others, um, starting to be well regarded across the college ball landscape. Yeah, and we'll we'll see how the uh, profile of the league continues to grow uh, with the additions of Mexico State, Sam Houston State, and uh, Liberty and, and Jacksonville State. Uh, hopefully, in in the coming years here, did I did I miss anybody? Or did I get all the new additions? <laughs> oh, listen, I, th- I think you got everybody. I can't keep up at this point. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. The the landscape is changing so quickly. We're gonna have to be a little more uh, nimble on our feet once uh, once we we get off of the off season lag that everybody seems to be on right now, which is which is fine. In terms of some programming notes on some future shows, we're definitely going to dive into uh, the new members of Conference USA. Uh, we are definitely going to chat about uh, some NFL draft prospects for some of these uh, soon-to-be former Conference USA players. And uh, there's definitely going to be more uh, transfer portal talk as we get closer to uh, National Signing Day uh, coming up very soon in February here. Uh, we'll probably do a, a little more detailed uh, recruiting show as well. We we sort of miss that with early signing day but listen we're busy okay <laughs> we're doing our best over here but to start wrapping the show up um eric we talk about south florida and the unique place that it is quite a bit and i know you and i are both hockey fans to some extent and we got to talk about the kodak black video that was so funny <laughs> like I, it, it gives me immense pleasure that, you know, people who are, I don't know, adults <laughs> and have responsibilities found out that there is, in fact, an NHL team in the greater Miami area and found out who this Kodak black person is on the same night. And this was their introduction to both. <laughs> Yeah, I guess for those of you not familiar with Kodak, you know, that's Broward County's finest right there. And one of the uh, litany of uh, talented rappers coming out of Broward County, uh, Pompano to be specific, which uh, anyone familiar with South Florida landscape understands why him being from Pompano uh, makes perfect sense with uh, the events of (laughs) Kodak's evening, which uh, 
to put it politely, uh, I guess I'll put it to you this way. The initial events that were reported that Kodak was was engaging in turned out not to be true, which was somewhat disappointing on my part. Now, that doesn't lessen the South Florida uniqueness of this, right? Because yes, while the um, events that, for those of you who may not pick up on what I'm saying, they were the same events that you saw in the back of a pickup truck uh, outside the Sun Bowl in El Paso earlier this year. While it wasn't necessarily that event, the event of a young lady, you know, twerking in a state of undress inside a, a suite at a hockey game. And you ask me where to what what hockey uh, team would I guess that would be? My two guesses would either be the Lightning or the Panthers and would be the Panthers first. because We're a little bit classier in Tampa. Uh, cough, cough. So, <laughs> yeah, again, it's just not shocking that that happened in South Florida. And it happened with everyone's favorite rapper. I mean, listen, if you don't like Kodak, there's a problem with yourself. But, you know, uh, that's just <laughs> it, for those of you who didn't see it, just punch in Kodak Black in your Google machine or your, your Twitter machine uh, and you will find out what was so great about that. And what makes South Florida such a unique place, Joe? I think I've mentioned this to you, kind of put a cap on this. I, gosh, I can't remember which game. It may have been the the old Dominion game. Woke up in my in my uh, my hotel room the next morning and just happened to gaze outside the hotel door, hotel window, and I was overlooking the pool and just happened to see on Sunday morning at nine a.m. Not some young ladies going to church, but uh, three young women in thongs twerking for presumably Snapchat or Instagram because they all were twerking and holding their phones behind their uh, behinds no pun intended. Uh, so yeah, that's what makes South Florida great. You know, some places you wake up on Sunday morning and it's a little more tame environment in South Florida. You, you can get the tame environment, but you can, can also get twerking. I mean, if nothing else, I'm, I'm glad we established who the real mayor of Chocolate Town is. <laughs> is, is it me or Kodak Black, Joe, or is it you? It's not me. It's, okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, based on your story about being outside the hotel, I was going to say it was you. But <laughs> no, man, l- l- listen, man, you know, that, well, that's the great thing about Chocolate Town is it's a mystery. You don't really know. <laughs> Chocolate Town is not a place, but a state of mind. <laughs> exactly. Great way to end the podcast. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week with more COSA talk uh, as well as whatever the hell we just talked about there. Uh, go ahead and subscribe on uh, Apple uh, as well as Spotify. That's where you can find episodes and uh, keep coming back to underdogdynasty.com every day uh, throughout the off season too uh, for more G5 football content. We are not going anywhere. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Happy football watching. 